On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our last unicorn listener polls and preview the Devil Wears product. Hello and welcome back to another prequel episode of This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We're going to get right into our normal stuff with our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners. And they are Vic Dangerously, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul Kat Insminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says, Renew Shadow and Bone, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much for supporting us and continuing to support us at the $15 a month level. We appreciate it, and we too hope that Shadow and Bone gets renewed. I don't know if they, they'll probably only have one more season. Maybe not. I don't know what they're mm-hmm. doing. There's only three books in The Shadow right. and Bone, and there's only two books in Six of Crows, which are the two, yeah, or the Crows duology, which are the two things they're doing. So I can't think they would do a lot more than three seasons, maybe four or something, if they want to split something up. But anyways, we have not still have not watched season two yet, so I don't actually know where that all goes and how it matches up with the book. So maybe they have a whole lot more seasons planned, but... Hopefully it gets renewed. All right, Katie, it's time to see what the people had to say about The Last Unicorn. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right. Over on Patreon, we had three votes for the movie and two for the book. A handful of fish bones said, there's something about fantasy whimsy that just does not connect with me. Which is weird, because I like sci-fi whimsy and surrealism. Whatever. The point is, I find about 60% of this story irrationally irritating. But I am enthralled once they get to the castle. I cannot stop thinking about King Haggard, this wicked old bastard with a giant mystical red bull, which he compelled to drive all the unicorns into the ocean so he could stare at them all day. Just sitting alone in his wretched castle with his weird son. (laughs) (laughs) It's fair um glaring out into the water to watch the shimmering of the unicorns that is unhinged i adore it (laughs) and i like the movie way way more than the book something in the odd stillness in the animation the way it doesn't match the intonation of the dialogue and the truncated ramblingness of the plot felt to me like a fever dream i don't know the flaws in the movie are just so deeply funny to me that i'm slightly obsessed with it well that's fantastic that's super fun to hear (laughs) um yeah it's definitely uh we talked about the animation and some of the ways it doesn't match but yeah there is an odd yes there is definitely an odd charm i think is a good way to put it yeah for sure so yeah no it's fun that uh you enjoyed you found something you didn't expect to enjoy and yet you did that's always fun um colin osborne said the story is amazing and what the movie lacks for cramming the whole thing into 90 minutes it makes up for with the unique rankin bass top craft animation style mm-hmm And our last comment on Patreon was from Mathilde, who said, I appreciated the movie, but much preferred the book. On the plus side for the movie, the backgrounds and many of the creatures' designs were gorgeous. It reminded me of Scarfy? Scarf? I've never heard of this. Uh, S-C-A-R-F-E. 
Yeah, I don't know. know. Which is unexpected in a kid's movie, but really appreciated. Also, most of the voice cast did a great job, except maybe Jeff Bridges, who I found boring. I didn't care for the music. I found the songs too on the nose and flat. The animation was also not my jam, not very fluid or natural. And overall, I agree, the movie felt truncated and rushed. The book was a lovely surprise. I too can't believe a guy in his early 20s could write something so sensitive and perceptive. The characters had a lot of depth, which was a bit lost in the movie, unfortunately, and I found myself touched by each of them and their fate. I loved the style as well. I love when there is an adjective or metaphor that is devastatingly effective, and there were plenty of those in there. Regarding the movie adaptation, I'm going to say two atrocities I never thought I'd say. One, I think there should have been some narration from the unicorn. It could have helped develop the characters and compensate for what had to be cut for time. I liked the introspection in the book, and I feel it could have been carried over in the movie. If you give it the correct ethereal feel, it wouldn't have been annoying like most narration can be. I will say we there are several times in the movie, from my memory, where we do hear the unicorn's like thoughts. There are a couple times, which is like, almost acts like a voiceover, but particularly not really. at the beginning where she's yeah. just like by herself in yeah. the forest, which I couldn't do that any other way. Yeah. To be fair, yeah, um, unless she's talking to like the trees or something, right. Yeah. Yeah, but there were a couple moments, but I, I would agree with that, that I do think it actually could have, you could have used, there are times where mm-hmm. a, a voiceover, you know, a narration of some sort makes sense, and if done well, can work just fine. It's just relying on it, you know, as a crutch is what's kind of frowned upon generally. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that it definitely could have helped, especially in a kid's movie like this. Yeah, and, and especially there is a lot of an inner narration from the unicorn in the book, obviously. Yeah. And I think they could have just pulled from that and made it work fine. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, so I looked up Scarf is a, is a, um, uh, uh, an artist and a cartoonist. Like they mm-hmm. do a lot of political cartoons. Um, and the style, the thing that I just kind of sc- scrolled through the Google image search and the thing that gave me the most um, Scarf vibes from the movie was like the character design of King Haggard in particular, like his face and stuff. Mm-hmm. He does these very like um, almost surreal, like uh, over the top, um, like caricatures of people that to me, like, oh, yeah, scar- like Haggard's like extremely, uh, <laughs> you know, lined face and um, sort of almost like he's being deformed by his cruelty or whatever like you know uh it kind of some of those characters remind me of like that uh, yeah like a little bit uh, and and some of the creatures as well like the harpy and stuff like that so i think that would be what what we're just or what uh matilda was referencing in relation to scarf um until went on to say i think this is due for a remake possibly a live version I think a more adult approach and a longer runtime could carry the themes of the book better, and I would like to see someone like Guillermo del Toro or Alfonso Cuaron give it a shot. Um, You're speaking my language. I mean, I I can't disagree with that, uh, but I would like Guillermo del Toro to make almost every movie. It's true. So, but uh, this does really (laughs) feel like it would be right in the way. I feel like this would be actually, honestly, like a a really good candidate for a live action remake. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, he's probably not the only one that would do a great job with it, but definitely one of the people yeah. that jumps to, you know, just like an obvious, like, first choice. Like, yeah. yeah. 
He could definitely nail the uh, foreboding whimsy of something like this. Um, And Mathilde's final comment was, final unpopular opinion, I actually liked the butterfly. I have ADHD and he made me feel seen. (laughs) Fair enough. I, uh, that's. You know, I know a lot of people with ADHD, and I don't find them annoying, but I found that butterfly <laughs> incredibly annoying. <laughs> so, I, uh, yeah, that's all I'll leave it at that. But yeah. I... Over on Facebook, we had two votes for the movie and zero for the book. Sarah said, when I saw this movie, I honestly didn't know what I was about to experience. This is one of the trippiest movies I've ever seen. Part of that being because of the animation. Sometimes the animation was gorgeous, but being mixed with poor figure animation, i.e. lack of facial emotion, it really added to the trippy feeling. I also want Brian to know that I also was certain the narwhals were the unicorns in the water. Vindication. (laughs) I remember when the film was over being very confused as to why the narwhals weren't used or mentioned again after seeing them. Thank you. It could have been an awesome story element. It makes perfect sense. I'm glad somebody else noticed the narwhals. There's no, I I was like, I'm starting to think I just imagined the shot of the narwhals, but. But they are, it's never mentioned in the book. I don't remember if we talked about that or not. I think we did. There are never narwhals mentioned in the book. Yeah. So I wonder if that was something that they like animated in, but then didn't want to like. But then didn't. Dramatically change the end of the story in some way. Could be. Yeah. I don't know. Over on Twitter, we had two votes for the book, one for the movie, and two listeners who couldn't decide. Kelly Napier said, I don't think we've seen such a faithful adaptation of a movie from a book before now in the pod, which made it a really hard choice between the two. I really enjoyed both, but I ended up giving it to the book because the music in the movie was just terrible. That's so funny because and we did talk about it in the episode how the music didn't work for me, you know, I, at least for me, I didn't, I didn't like the music as much as I was hoping, kind yeah. of thinking, because people, I, the, one of the things I had heard about this movie was that lots of people did like the the mm-hmm. score and particular people in germany for some reason it was a it was a top selling uh, score <laughs> in germany with the uh the year it came out it was like certified platinum or something and in germany uh in particular but it was never i think i read that it was never the soundtrack was not released in the u.s anyways mm-hmm. all that aside i the music didn't do a lot for yeah me. i i didn't mind the first song like the title song or whatever. Yeah. I thought that was kind of fun the and charming in like a very 80s way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I felt like I was listening to the 80s distilled into a single song. Yeah. But the rest of it I found just like very flat. Yeah, yeah. I was in particular, I, I, I think part of it was that I was hoping for a different type of score. Yeah. In particular, there was this flash game. Uh, I'll put the, I'll put this in in the edit. I'll find the song. I think I've even talked about it before on this podcast briefly. I don't remember when. Um, there was this flash game that I played in high school or college called Unicorn Something. You were a unicorn, mm-hmm. and it was just like a game where you had to like, you were, it was like a side-scrolling thing where your unicorn runs and it goes faster and faster, and you make it jump over like obstacles and collect like stars or something like that. Uh-huh. And it goes faster and faster, and you just try to go as long as you can before you, like, hit a wall and die or whatever. Super simple. But the thing, the reason everybody's obsessed with it, from my memory, was that the song that played while you were playing the game is incredible. And it's Hmm. this, like, 80s, like, pop ballad 
that is just amazing. And I was really hoping <laughs> because a unicorn was involved, I was like, maybe that song was inspired by this movie's soundtrack or something. Uh, I don't yeah. know where that song came yeah. from. Um, but that song is amazing. I'll put in mm. a little brief clip of it here. When it's cold outside, am I here in vain? Hold on to the nights, there will be no shame. Always I want to be with you, make believe with you, and live in harmony, harmony, I was really hoping the score was going to be more like that, which is uh, more of like a soaring, like 80s synth pop, like ballad thing. Yeah, like a power ballad. Kind of. It's hard to explain. I'm not doing it. But anyways, and I don't have the, the I don't have the musical lexicon to, uh, to put it in the in the in the right terms. But anyways, that's so that's what I was hoping for. And when it wasn't really that, I was a little let down because uh, I really was thinking it might be something like that. So anyways, uh, if you want a better uh, unicorn themed 80s styled uh, <laughs> music score, uh, check out the theme song from whatever that game was called. <laughs> it's called like Magic Unicorn Run or something. I don't remember. Anyways. If you are trying to find the song, the game was called Robot Unicorn Attack. Apparently there was also a sequel with a good song. I don't know. I've never heard that one. Uh, or, or played the sequel, but the first game was called Robot Unicorn Attack, and if you just Google that, you'll find the song on YouTube. The song on YouTube has like three and a half million views, so I know I'm not the only one <laughs> that remembers this song. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Yeah, who somebody's will gonna yes. know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it was. I remember tons of people playing it in high school or whatever on like uh, browser-based, yeah, like Flash game or whatever. Anyways, anyways. Um, over on Instagram, we had one vote for the movie and two for the book. Corinne Neva said, I haven't listened yet, but I saw this as a very small child, and all I remember is being terrified, disliking a glowing blue false horn, and harpy boobs, all caps. There you go. Uh, the glowing blue false horn was the one that... When she was at the in the carnival. Mama, what's her yeah. name, puts on him. Puts on the unicorn so that people actually think it's a unicorn yeah. because they can't see the real horn, but they'll see this fake horn. Anyways, but yeah, the har- I, I think if I had seen this movie as a kid, the harpy boobs really would have been burned into my my yeah, brain. Yeah, would have made an impression. <laughs> it would have been seared in there. <laughs> yeah. And we have a comment on Goodreads this time. Uh, we occasionally get one over there. Uh, so zero votes for the movie, one for the book from Goodreads. And our comment was from Miko who said, had I read The Last Unicorn when I was younger, I might have enjoyed it more, but now it feels like Terry Pratchett light. Hmm. That's in no way a bad thing, but I still had a nagging feeling that I should go read some Discworld books instead. Did you have that vibe? You're obviously... Yeah, there's... Yeah. No, I mean, I know we talked about Terry Pratchett. I'm just saying, like, did you feel like it was like a lesser version of... Uh, no, I Terry didn't. Pratchett. I didn't feel like it was lesser. Okay. Um, the, I think it, it was maybe stylistically less dense. Yeah. Than his books, but his books are very stylistically dense. So just about anything. Okay. Is less stylistically dense. Fair. Than that Pratchett. is fair. Yes. Yeah. That is fair. Uh, no, I, I definitely noticed the similarities, but I didn't. I didn't feel like it was like lesser than. Yeah, and I don't want to put too many words into Miko's mouth here. They said Terry Pratchett light, and that it's not a bad thing, but they just felt like they should go yeah. read Discworld. So to me, that reads a little bit like you know, it's not quite up to the same like. 
right level. And technically, this book does predate yes. Discworld. Yes, yeah, and you, you talked about it. obviously you felt like this was something like this is not is is where you know Pratchett and stuff got. They would have been inspired by this as opposed to right. I could potentially versa. see that having yes. been the case. Uh, Miko went on to say, the annoying butterfly is Beagle's self-insort of sorts, which somewhat explains its anachronistic babble. The modern song lyrics and other mentions throughout the book, like Tacos, Trains, Robin Hood, France, or folklorist Francis James Child, really bugged me, especially since in the translation, the most recent references are all from the late 80s. To me, the setting didn't feel timeless or patchwork pastiche, but simply messy. Which is a shame because I think Beagle blends other stuff seamlessly together. It's hard to explain, but when describing the Red Bull or the unicorns being trapped in the ocean, it's not quite clear what's literal, what's magical, and what's metaphorical. But it works beautifully. I don't think I care about any of the characters. The unicorn feels like a side character in her own story, even more so in her human form. I, I agree with that very much, at least in the movie. The yeah. unicorn that this movie is about and named for feels very much not like an interesting, fleshed out character. Yeah, I would In a agree way that, that I thought was a little disappointing, because it definitely feels more so like this movie is about... Um, I mean, it is, but it, 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 I think it's just because she has so few lines so often, and yeah, I would agree with that a lot. Anyways. Sorry. Um, where was I? Um, okay. Uh, Miko said, I went on to say, I also feel like none of the characters have that much agency. Spendrick gaining control of his magic did not feel earned in the slightest. It's just a story beat that happened because it should have happened. Prince Lear didn't come across as romantic, just obsessive. And Jeff Bridges' performance does not help in the movie. The book wins. It just has so much more going on, but it's nowhere near my favorite books like it seems to be for many. I think I'll stick to Pratchett. In my opinion, he does many of the things present in this story much better, like the anachronistic setting or the awareness of story tropes. Yeah, I think that's fair. I have yeah. a lot of things like that where especially um, there, I, <laughs> I have this argument with, uh, not argument, this discussion with Kyle pretty regularly about video games where he, he really likes playing older video, you know, like the original, like older, more retro games. Um, that he liked when he was younger and stuff. And I, and a lot of times we'll have a discussion. He's like, well, but they do this so well. And I was like, yeah, but modern, a lot of modern games do all that stuff you like. They just do it better now. <laughs> and it's kind of a similar vibe of like, yeah, Terry Pratchett does all this stuff. He just does a little better mm -hmm. or, in a, or maybe not better, but in a, in a, in, in a style that is more to Miko's liking. Than, yeah. Um, than, than Beagle did in this story, which I think is fair. And I, mm -hmm. I, I can understand that a lot. <laughs> All right, so we had a dead tie yeah. this time. Both the book and the movie received seven votes, and then we had our two listeners who couldn't decide. Yeah, I think our polls got buried on this one. I, I was really frustrated this week. Yeah, because we because did not have many votes. We, we, have had, we have had a bad time on, like, you know, maybe we'll have a bad time on, like, one platform, one yeah. week, usually Facebook. But we had a bad time on every platform yeah. this week, and I, I was pretty frustrated. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure why, because we had a lot of engagement going into the episode. Yeah. With people talking about, like, you know, responding to our poll about, like, who had heard of it and stuff like that. 
Um, so yeah, it just seemed like for whatever reason, either people weren't yeah. getting it or people didn't weren't interested. In I don't know because we only got like nine votes on Twitter, and it's been a long time since we yeah, did we that get poorly on dozens. Twitter. Yeah, yeah, it's several dozen votes for most episodes, and some episodes are more than that, depending on what it is. But yeah, it is it is a little surprising that it was so low, but it you never know. Sometimes it's the algorithm. Sometimes it's it can be a million different things. So. Anyways, uh, it was a tie, uh, but I'm giving it to the book, so I'm the I'm gonna be the deciding <laughs> factor and lay my vote on the one side of the scale. We don't have a learning thing segment this week because we have quite a few notes on our coming story. So let's get into that and learn a little bit now about the book, The Devil Wears Prada. Miranda Priestley is the editor in chief of Runway. So you don't read Runway? No. Not to mention a legend. And before today, you'd never heard of me. No. You work a year for her, and you can get a job at any magazine you want. You have no style or sense of fashion. I, I... No, no. That wasn't a question. You got a job at a fashion magazine? <laughs> what, was it a phone interview? Who is that? Are we doing a before and after piece I don't know about? <laughs> In the world of high fashion. There you are, Emily. Actually, it's Andy. My name is Andy. A million girls would kill for this job. There's some reason that my coffee isn't here. Did she go to Rwanda for the beans or something? Where so much is at stake. I need 10 or 15 skirts. The boys! The boys! Hello? Where are my eggs? The Devil Wears Prada is a 2003 novel by American author Lauren Weisberger. Uh, the novel is considered an example of the chick lit genre, uh, a term that has fallen out of fashion. Hopefully, it's obvious why it has fallen yes. out of fashion, <laughs> um, but it was widely used in the 90s and 2000s to describe popular realistic fiction targeted to young women. Uh, if that sounds incredibly vague, that's because it is. Yes. Um, but generally, the way that I consider this genre is like, if it's very obvious that they're trying to reach big fans of Sex in the City, yeah, it's chiclet. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And unrelated to the the still existing gum, I don't know if chiclets <laughs> are still chiclets. Are chiclets still being made? I think so. Probably. I don't know who's buying them, but uh, I think they're still I'm being made. I'm pretty sure they're only sold in uh, quarter vending machines at malls <laughs> and and the like Mexican restaurants. I don't think they're like anywhere else, but uh, so the novel spent six months on the New York Times bestseller list. By July 2006, it was the best-selling mass-market softcover book in the U.S., according to Publishers Weekly. Uh, the Devil Wears Prada is largely based on Weisberger's experience at Vogue magazine as an assistant to editor-in-chief Anna Wintour. Mm -hmm. um, and there is much speculation that the book's primary antagonist, Miranda Priestley, represents Wintour and the fictional Elias Clark publishing company in the book is modeled after Condé Nast. Yeah. That um, was everything I also yeah. found when researching uh, the movie. Much, <laughs> much speculation about this. Uh, Weisberger has stated that Priestley's demands in the book are partial fiction and a composite of actual experiences that she and her friends had in their first jobs, although she has never explicitly confirmed that the character is based on Wintour. Uh, Wintour herself does make a cameo appearance near huh. the end of the book, where it is said that she and Miranda dislike each other. Interesting. 
Um, so perhaps unsurprisingly, the book was not well received at Vogue. Uh, Kate Betts, a Vogue editor, criticized Weisberger and the book in the New York Times, writing, quote, Andrea is just as much a snob as the snobs she is thrown in with, um, which I would agree with. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about it in the episode. Um, it's just a different kind of snobbery. Yeah. Um, so back to Anna Wintour, um, she's considered uh, one of the most powerful people in the fashion industry and famously considered demanding and difficult to work with. Of the novel, Wintour told the New York Times, quote, I always enjoy a great piece of fiction. I haven't decided whether I'm going to read it or not. Mm. Uh, you have a note in the movie section about the costumes. I also want to add that there were designers who yes. refused to allow their merchandise to appear in the film, um, fearing that they would end up in Wintour's ill graces. Yeah, I had a notes about that I didn't include. Also, <clears throat> there are designers who they wanted just like physically wanted the person to appear in the mm -hmm. film. It was like, no, nah, I'm good. Yeah. There are a few who do make appearances, but a lot of them were like, no, nah, no, thanks. <laughs> Uh, Janet Maslin of the New York Times described the novel as, quote, a mean-spirited gotcha of a book, one that offers little indication that the author could interestingly sustain a gossip-free narrative. Hmm. Jennifer Krauss of Newsday agreed that the book had problems, but praised it as a, quote, fun, frivolous read. Uh, a sequel... Revenge Wears Prada, The Devil Returns, was published in 2013, while a third novel, When Life Gives You Lululemons, was published in 2018. Truly two terrible titles. <laughs> the original title is much better the than either, title either of is, the sequels. is fine. Like, it's a good, like, clever little title. These Those follow-ups were trying to capture yeah. that magic, mm. that lightning in a bottle, and boy, oh boy, did they fail. Revenge Wears Prada, colon, The Devil Returns is awful. This is pretty bad. That sounds like a direct-to-TV sequel <laughs> that, like, got made on, like, <laughs> on Lifetime Movie Network or something. Uh, starring, yeah, oh, God, I don't even know. Just some, yeah, it, that is, that's brutal. And then When Life Gives You Lululemons is... Well, When Life Gives You Lululemons Oof. is, it's super in line with the genre with like the chick lit right. genre, but it also sounds like a completely different like book and series. Yeah. Like if you just told me that title, I would guess that it was about like a fashionable yoga instructor whose boyfriend dumps her, but then she meets the perfect man. Right. Exactly. Would be my guess. Yeah. Something like that. It, it, those are just two terrible <laughs> titles. Just awful. <laughs> Uh, my final note here is that aside from the film that we'll be discussing, the novel has also been adapted as a musical, which opened in Chicago in 2022. Wow. I have not heard. So I probably didn't. It probably <laughs> didn't go very far. Yeah, it, probably not. <laughs> if that's a. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, speaking of adaptations, it's time now to learn a little bit about The Devil Wears Prada, the film. Andy Sachs is about to discover. She hates me, Nigel. There's a way that you can help me. Little Chris go on some fishing line and we're in business. It's not just about what you wear. What do you think? <laughs> Andy, you look so chic. You look so thin. Do I? Just one stomach flew away from my gold weight. It's about who you are. Nate. I got it. Let me talk to her. No, 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 I'm leaving right now. Do you know why I hired you? I see a great deal of myself in you. 
The person whose calls you always take, that's the relationship you're in. Let me know when your whole life goes up in smoke. That means it's time for a promotion. People think that success just happens to you. It doesn't. You want this life? The decision's yours. The Devil Wears Prada. The Devil Wears Prada is a 2006 film directed by David Frankel, who's known for directing uh, an episode of The Band of Brothers, which is a very different, uh, big departure from this. Uh, the film One Chance, some episodes of Entourage, some episodes of Sex in the City, uh, and the film Marley and Me, among other things. What an interesting resume. <laughs> yeah. He mostly works in TV, from what I saw, uh, with a couple films here and there. Mm. Uh, and I, the reason he works on this movie is because he did Sex in the City. Mm. Uh, directed, I think it was it was more than one episode. Was yeah. A handful of episodes of Sex in the City. So I would imagine that would be the reason he was on this film. And written by, and I didn't know this, which is really interesting, Aline Brosh McKenna, who is most known, at least to us, as being the creator and showrunner of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, mm. uh, but who also wrote We Bought a Zoo, 27 Dresses, and a handful of other things. Um, but yeah, it was the, like, along with um, Rachel uh, Bloom? Yeah. Is that her last name? Uh, the, the two of them created and wrote nice. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend together. So there you go. Uh, and then also it was uh, Lauren Weisberger, the author of the book, is credited uh, on IMDb as a writer, but that's just for the screenplay, I believe, or for the book. Right. The film stars Meryl Streep, Anne Hathaway, Emily Blunt, Stanley Tucci, Simon Baker, Adrian Grenier, uh, Giselle Bunchen, Tracy Thorns, and Rich Summer, among others. It has a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 62 out of 100 on Metacritic, and a 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb. And it made $326 million against a budget of $35 million, so a huge success. That is a ton of money yeah. for that small of a budget. That's a very... Very uh, profitable film. So uh, Fox bought the rights to the novel before not only when it was published, but before it had even been finished. Uh, Carly ha Car Carla Hacken, who was the studio exec uh, uh, vice or who was the vice president at Fox at the time, had only seen the first hundred pages of the manuscript and then an outline for how the rest of the book would go. Um, but that was enough for her. She bought it and saying, quote, I thought Miranda Priestly was one of the greatest villains ever. And then she recalled later in 2016, quote, I remember we aggressively went in and scooped it up. <clears throat> that uh, just real quick. I want to say that the outline for the rest of the book must have been amazing because I'm about 100 pages in. And I don't think that would have been my impression of it based on the first oh, really? hundred pages. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, Elizabeth Gabler, who was another uh, head of production at Fox later, uh, would note that the finished novel didn't actually have a complete narrative. Uh, and this is a quote she had, which I'll be interested to see what you think of this when you finish the book and when we get to the mm -hmm. movie. Uh, she says, quote, since there wasn't a strong third act in the book, we needed to invent that. Hmm. So apparently the, the third act of this film, uh, not really coming from the book necessarily, because I thought the book was kind of weak in that regard. Uh, so David Frankel, the director, had limited experience coming into this. Like I said, he had worked on Entourage and um, Sex in the City, but he, I think he only had one, uh, like one feature film before mm -hmm. this, and it was a smaller, you know, like kind of independent, smaller budget feature film. And apparently, initially uh, described this project as undirectable, as it was a satire rather than a love story. I don't know why that would make it undirectable, uh, but I whatever. <laughs> does he mean what kind this of love story? This is a truncated quote from Wicked. I don't know. I don't know. Because I wouldn't call this story a love story at all. 
Yeah, I know. Well, he's saying it's not. Yeah. He, yeah, I don't know. He, I don't. I, I, the context of this quote was removed, so I don't yeah. know what. It, and there's like a dot, dot, dot in the middle, so I don't know how the first <laughs> part where he called it undirectable connects to the second part. There may be other words that make that <laughs> make more sense. Because I was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> you can direct a satire, man. That's a. Th- I don't like what. <laughs> this is a weird. Again, I, there was probably more around that that maybe makes it make more sense. Um, but he would go on later to cite a documentary called Unzipped uh, from 1995, which was about the designer Isaac Mizrahi. Uh, and he used this apparently as the model for the film's attitude towards fashion, saying, quote, it revels in some of the silliness of the fashion world, but it is also very serious, end quote. And I think what he's probably getting at here is he wasn't sure the tone that mm-hmm. the movie should have uh, going back to the previous quote about calling it undirectable or whatever. I think he was struggling with what tone it should have is like, going into it like is it you know is it more comical is it more satirical or should it be more played straight or you know what's and i think that's kind of what he was getting at is is it being undirectable maybe uh so then later at a uh, apparently at a meeting with uh feinerman who was um one of the producers i believe on the i can't remember what they were but anyway i think they're a producer ahead at, at fox or something like that um uh, Frankel had told her that he thought the story unnecessarily punished Miranda, saying, quote, my view was that we should be grateful for excellence. Why do excellent people have to be nice? End quote. He prepared to move on and consider more scripts. Uh, but then two days later, his manager um, persuaded him to reconsider and uh, and actually sign on to the film and he took the job uh but apparently gave Feinerman extensive notes on the script and laid out a deta- his detailed vision for the film and i will say that quote of his scares me i don't what is that's a weird my view was that we should be grateful for excellence why do excellent people have to be nice that is very much uh it actually doesn't surprise me at all from a director that yeah. is like classic auteur theory like all of the greats are you know horrible and like but that's how what they have to do to create incredible mm-hmm. art. You know, it's every defense of Stanley Kubrick you've ever heard, et cetera, um, is that, you know, they, they're genius. It doesn't matter that they're like awful people to the people around them because they're so genius or whatever. And it's fine. Uh, so I'm interested to see the direction the movie takes, because yeah. if that was his kind of like um, sort of, you know, his his thesis going in, uh, I don't know. It's not a thesis I agree with anymore. I probably did at some point in my younger (laughs) life, but not so much anymore. Uh, So uh, the screenwriter McKenna uh, apparently uh, consulted with some people that she knew in the fashion industry to make her screenplay more realistic. Uh, Apparently four versions of this script were worked on by different screenwriters at different times, but Aline McKenna... Uh, Aline Brosh McKenna, is that what? Yeah, was is the final version and the one I went with. And she worked with people in the fashion industry to kind of make it more realistic. And she said this was really difficult because a lot of them didn't want to ris- uh, risk offending Wintour, which is another mm. thing you mentioned. And in 2010, at a British Academy of Film and Television Arts lecture, um, she talked about a scene that was changed after one of these reviews. And apparently in the scene, Nigel, who I believe is Stanley Tucci's character, yeah. uh, tells Andy, who I believe is Anne Hathaway's character, mm-hmm. uh, not to complain so much about her job. And originally in the script, she had that be a more like supportive pep talk. Uh, but one of her acquaintances was like, that would not happen, saying, quote, no one in that world is nice to each other. There's no reason to be and they don't have time. <laughs> so that is... <laughs> Uh, she had to, ch- she changed the, the supportive pep talk from Nigel's character into a more like scathing, you know, yeah. kind of like get your shit together. I don't know. I haven't seen the movie, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know what he actually says, but, 
Uh, moving on to another famous scene from this movie uh, that I believe is still the reason I see this people like I see this take. I didn't know this is where this take originated from, but I see this parroted on Reddit and Twitter and shit all the time. I didn't realize it came from this movie about like defending like the fashion industry. Uh, and it's the cerulean sweater speech or whatever. Miranda draws a connection between uh, the designer fashion in Runways magazine and a cerulean sweater that Andy is wearing and criticizes Andy's snobbishness about fashion and explains the trickle-down effect. Um, and apparently this was uh, from an earlier version of the script. It ended up getting cut, but Marilyn Streep liked it so much she forced them to put it back into the mm. movie, basically. But I've heard this repeated so many times. Anytime somebody tweets some dumb shit about like a picture of some from some fashion show of some outfit that's ridiculous that nobody would obviously ever wear in a day-to-day life and like look at how stupid fashion is, the top comment or the top quote tweet is always somebody being like, uh, actually, fashion is about... And I'm not even saying I disagree. Like it seems like a perfectly reasonable thing, um, but they're, you know, basically explaining the idea that fashion, the designers that what they're putting on the runway was never meant to be functional like everyday wear. This is inspiring trends and blah 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 all this sort of thing, which I, I guess is what uh, Meryl Streep's character explains in this scene. Um, and I did not realize that that was what it's yeah kind of okay maybe it's not. But I I'd always heard people I've always seen people like kind of say that and I. It sounds like what this scene is basically about, and it was interesting because I didn't know if that's maybe this is where people kind of got that talking point from, or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it came from somewhere else, but it's a po- a point that I see repeated all the time on the internet, and I figured maybe it was from this, or again where most people were exposed to that idea. So, uh, getting into a, a, a fashion reporter who for the Guardian um, who talked about this scene, uh, Morwina Fet- Morwina Ferrier. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Um, said, quote, as a fashion journalist, I can, uh, talking about this, the Cerulean speech, as a fashion journalist, I can vouch for its gist that regardless of how immune you think you are to fashion, if you buy clothes, you are indebted to someone else's choices. Uh, going on to say, arguing that you are oblivious to trends is a fashion choice in itself. And then as an example of this, she cited apparently some yellow dress that Rihanna wore to the Met Gala in 2015 and how that popularized the color of that particular color over the next few years. Um, And then also in 2021, a different magazine argued um, that the idea that it promotes that fashion uh, always trickles down from the cultural elite is somewhat contradicted by brands such as Vediments, which I don't know what that is. Um, but this is somebody kind of offering a, an alternative perspective that to the idea that fashion trickles down from mm-hmm. like you know the high fashion designers and hope fashion or whatever, but saying that uh, a lot of times uh, brands will actually take their inspiration from everyday streetwear and Champion, which is another sportswear brand whose popularity with low income customers helped make it an elite brand that those customers can no longer afford. So they're basically saying that sometimes it goes the other way. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, like high fashion will be inspired by kind of like common street fashion and stuff like that. And I saw another article referencing that a lot of that intertwines with like cultural appropriation and stuff like that, which is also another interesting topic that I didn't want to get into here because it's a whole complicated thing. But um, all that stuff kind of intersects in different ways. Point being, it's complicated. It moves both directions. And sometimes we steal stuff from black people. So that's that. So getting into some casting notes, uh, the studio and filmmakers involved in the film claim that Meryl Streep was seen as the only option for Miranda from the beginning. But according to other sources, there's been claims that there were other actresses considered for the role. And those include Michelle Pfeiffer, Glenn Close and Catherine Zeta-Jones. 
which all make a lot of sense to me, mm. which wouldn't surprise me if those were at least considered. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, getting Cruella de Vil feels I, like that makes a, lot of sense. a little on the nose, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, I, I totally would. That, any of those people would make a lot of sense to me. So, uh, according to the director, um, apparently Meryl Streep saw this film as a chance to, quote, skewer the doyness of the fashion world. Is that how you say that word? Doy- I think it's doyaness. Doyaness. Skewer the doyaness of the fashion world. Uh, Meryl Streep has three daughters. She's an ardent feminist, and she felt that magazines, quote, twisted the minds of young women around the world and their priorities. This was an interesting way to get back at them, end quote. Uh, also, she said that she liked that the film passed the Bechdel test, <laughs> which is a very outdated uh, or a fairly outdated um, sort of like litmus test for whether or not a film is like remotely uh egalitarian in regards to like women characters and mm. stuff like that which is basically if you don't know what the Bechdel test is the idea is that I, from my memory it's been a long time is that uh do, do two women in the movie have a conversation about something other than like a romantic love interest like with a man or something like yeah, that yeah and they have to be named and they have to be na- yes two named characters having a conversation about something other than like a love interest yeah would be or a specifically a male love interest i think but Again, there's things that pass the Bechdel test that are still incredibly <laughs> misogynistic <laughs> and gross, and there are things that don't pass the Bechdel test that are incredibly, uh, you know, empowering and, like, egalitarian and whatever, So and, and feminist and stuff. So it's, it's more complicated than that, but it's, like, a very, like, kind of... Anyways, go read about the Bechdel test if you want to learn more about that. Uh, so, apparently Meryl Streep was kind of locked in from the beginning, but casting Andy, uh, which eventually went to Anne Hathaway, was a much more difficult proposition... Because Fox wanted a super, like, hot, young, A-list actress. And initially, they thought Rachel McAdams was that person. Because she has coming off the success of Mean Girls and The Notebook. Uh, and they were like, that'll make money because she's, she's, she's so hot right now. Um, but she apparently turned down the role several times, uh, telling them that she did not want to do any, like, mainstream Hollywood projects for a bit. Some other people that were considered for the role included Kirsten Dunst, Natalie Portman, Scarlett Johansson, and Kate Hudson. Apparently, I feel like Kate so, Hudson would have been a little old for that role. Not like not, not compared in, not to the, in 2006. No? I don't think. I thought she was older. Like not not that she was old, but like compared to those other actresses, they're all been like early 20s. I thought Kate Hudson would have been like 30s or something. Maybe I maybe I'm I mean she was she was doing a lot of like rom coms at this time. Okay, fair enough. I, I I don't disagree that she was doing rom coms. I just thought that this character was supposed to be like a super young, fresh out of school. Like yeah, I mean she is. And I I maybe I'm wrong, and I'm just misremembering. And I but I thought anyways. I don't know. Anyways, I don't know how old Kate Hudson. I don't is either. I don't either. So head. I could be completely wrong about that. For some reason though, in my brain she's she's yeah older. But than that, the rest this of is really actually. just a list of like every A list actress yeah. yes. from this time period which is always the case with these yeah. casting things they're always like probably mostly bullshit but um anyways uh so apparently all of those people were considered for the role but unlike some of the other people including rachel mcadams who turned the role down uh anna hathaway was actively wanted wanted the role uh, apparently uh she went as far as to while auditioning for the role at some point writing hire me in the sand of a zen garden outside one of the like executives offices <laughs> Uh, to try to get herself the part. That's interesting. Eventually she did get the part, so I guess it worked. Uh, Emily Blunt got the part after she read lines for an audition in the Fox uh, studio lot before she was boarding a flight to London to audition for Aragon, uh, a part which she did not get. Um, 
and then ultimately would go on to get this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, her character being British is something that she brought to the role because yeah. Emily Blunt, Blunt is British, um, I think, right? I think pretty so. Sure, I'm pretty sure she is. Uh, and she thought she did it with her normal accent and then liked it for the character, so they kept it, basically. Because uh, the character in the book is American. Um, but apparently both her and Anne Hathaway lost weight for their roles. Uh, and Hathaway would later recount that, quote, they would clutch, we would clutch each other at each other and cry because we were so hungry. It's terrible. Uh, and apparently Blunt would de- denied rumors later that they did this at the filmmaker's request. I was assuming David Frankel. Apparently somebody, I, I, what I didn't see anything about Anne Hathaway saying that it was the director that told him to do this, but apparently somebody said that it was at some point and Blunt was like, no, who knows? Yeah. It's all a nightmare, so who knows? So some other people were apparently auditioned for the role of Nigel, which is Stanley Tucci's role in the film. Uh, They apparently auditioned Barney's creative director, Simon Doonan, and E! Television's uh, Robert Verdi, who are both openly gay men, who are like media fashion commentators Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, Also, apparently Graham Norton auditioned, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Ultimately, the role went to Tucci, who is not gay, uh, which is, you know, its own thing. But uh, Verdi, uh, who's the guy from E!, uh, would later say that he thought there was no intention for them to actually hire him and that they were literally auditioned him uh, and Doonan uh, to basically give filmed uh, like the uh, filmed audition tapes to whoever they cast to be used as research for playing this gay character. Interesting. He ended up with a part like a cameo in the movie. Yeah. In in a scene in Paris. Um Tucci would say that he was unaware of this if this is the case, saying, quote, all I know is that someone called me and I realized this was a great part. Uh, And he said he based the character on various people he knew and was friends with. And apparently he was also uh, he insisted on the glasses that he wore in the film. He was like this. These uh, these work for my character. I don't know. I've not seen this movie, so I don't know anything about it. Um, (laughs) But anyway, so there's there's, that was a whole mess of casting mess, apparently, of. Yeah. Some people thinking they were basically being exploited and not actually being seriously considered. Uh, and then they gave the role to a straight guy and they're like, all right, well, or I think Stanley Tucci's straight. I'm fairly certain. I'm I don't know if that's for I, sure I the case, is. but <laughs> I think he is. So uh, apparently the film had a $100,000 budget for the costumes, but this ended up being supplemented by help from costume designers because Patricia Field, who was the costume designer uh, for the, or the costume, you know, designer for the film, had a bunch of friends in the fashion industry, and she believes that at least a million dollars worth of clothes were used in the film, uh, making it one of the most expensive costume movies in cinema history. According to this, I don't, that seems not true, but maybe, I mean, a million dollars worth of clothing is a lot. I guess it's possible. I just yeah. would imagine. I guess maybe it depends on what you mean by clothing. I don't know. I feel like if you're making like a bunch of armor and stuff for like a big, like the Lord of the Rings movies, the costume yeah. budget had to be huge on a, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm right. But it just seems to me a million dollars worth of, it's a lot, but it doesn't seem like that would have been like the largest in history. But it, I, I don't know. It I does say one of true it does say one of which you can say that about anything i guess (laughs) (laughs) technically (laughs) apparently the single priciest item in the film was a hundred thousand dollar fred layton necklace uh that meryl streep wore so i mean they're right they're right there's a tenth of your budget yeah which doesn't or not i that all sounds real fishy to me i don't know those numbers don't add up but anyways 
So uh, apparently on the this is IMDb trivia facts now. Uh, on the first day of filming, Meryl Streep uh, told Anna Hathaway, "quote I think you're perfect for the role. I'm so happy we're going to be working together." Then she paused and followed with, "quote That's the last nice thing I'll say to you." End quote. <laughs> she getting in character. She getting in character apparently. <laughs> uh, the film uh, getting into some reviews. The film was nominated for two Oscars, including for best supporting actress for Meryl Streep and best costumes. Did not win either. And then in the reviews. A.O. Scott of the New York Times wrote, quote, no longer simply the incarnation of evil. She is now a vision of aristocratic, purposeful and surprisingly human grace. Uh, speaking of. Um, Meryl Streep's character. Meryl Streep's character. What is uh, Miranda Priestly? Mm -hmm. uh, Kyle Smith writing for the New York Post agreed with that take saying, quote, the snaky Streep's wisely chooses not to imitate Vogue editrix. Anna Wintour, the inspiration for the book, but creates her own surprisingly believable character, end quote. Um, which was a thing that I read in several things that they, uh, that Streep did not, even though the book's character is pretty much based on Anna Wintour, Streep kind of took it a different mm -hmm. direction and didn't just do like a, a very clear like yeah. imitation of Anna Wintour. Uh, David Edelstein in New York Magazine uh, criticized the film as thin, saying, quote, um, or sorry, uh, but praised Streep for her, her, quote, fabulous minimalist performance. Uh, and then another guy writing for The Village Voice called the movie an, an improvement on the book and said that Streep was, quote, the scariest, most nuanced, funniest movie villainess since Tilda Swinton's Nazified White Witch uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What a sentence. Yes. <laughs> Nazified White Witch. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, I, I had to go to uh, Ebert's website, but I was able to find it. Roger Ebert gave the film two out of four stars, uh, wrapping up his review by saying, quote, and I will say this review was a rambling one. I read the whole thing because his reviews are pretty short. This is towards the end of his life. I don't. It's this <laughs> review is mostly not about the movie. It's very strange. Uh, and so I was struggling. But the last paragraph definitely um, uh, at least <laughs> kind of made for something I could pull and talk about here. Uh, he wrapped up the review saying, quote, Meryl Streep is indeed poised and imperious as Miranda. And Anne Hathaway is a great beauty uh, who makes a convincing career girl. I liked Stanley Tucci, too, as Nigel, the magazine's fashion director, who is kind, observant, and observant despite being a careerist slave. But I thought this movie should have reversed the roles played by Grenier and Baker. Grenier comes, comes, not, comes across not like the old boyfriend, but like the slick New York writer, and Baker seems the embodiment of Midwestern sincerity, which makes sense because he is from Australia, the Midwest of the Southern Hemisphere, which is the <laughs> final line in the Ebert's review of this movie. <laughs> Which is very funny to me. Oh, man. <laughs> the Midwest of the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, Australians, can you confirm? Are you guys, do you guys say confirm, Ope? Confirm, deny. Do you guys Argue say Ope? I'm going to squeeze right past you. <laughs> the Southern Hemisphere. So you've seen this, I assume, right? Yes. Okay. It's I been a not, long time, but I have. I have not seen this one. I'm interested. I've always heard it's like a pretty good movie. Um, obviously, we talked about the reviews and stuff. It's got fairly good reviews. I'm interested to see... I'm really interested to see kind of where what I don't know anything about it and like what it's what its take is like I don't mm. know what this movie's trying to say so I'm interested to see that <laughs> I mean you know I know it's about like fashion and and but yeah I don't know and like you know uh, Anne Hathaway is like this kind of the foil to like uh, um, Meryl Streep's character and they like they disagree about fashion blah 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 and I assume it's gonna be like and they both learned something kind of deal but we'll see. <laughs> 
I don't know. I'm interested <laughs> to see uh, what it is because it's yeah, it's definitely different from uh, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about recently. So it should be fun. Come back in one week's time. We're talking about the Devil Wears Prada. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And keep, keep being awesome. awesome.